Nutrition and Clinical Practice podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. Joining me today is the author of the paper, Extending Our Knowledge of Fermentable Short-Chain Carbohydrates for Managing Gastrointestinal Symptoms, published in the June 2013 issue of NCP. I'm pleased to introduce Dr. Jacqueline Barrett. She's a senior lecturer and research dietitian from the Monash University Central Clinical School in Melbourne, Australia. Welcome today, Jackie. I'd like to start by asking Dr. Barrett if she has any disclosures on this topic that she'd like to share. No, I don't. Great. We want to go ahead and, and have just a little conversation. I really appreciate you joining me today. I really want to kind of explore some of the topics that you discussed in your review paper in NCP. So okay. to kind of set the groundwork for our discussion today, could you please define for our audience the acronym FODMAP and what is excluded in a FODMAP diet? Sure. So the acronym stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides and polyols. And what we're looking at is a group of uh, short-chain carbohydrates of varying chain length that can have the potential to be poorly absorbed in the small intestine. And what we cover are the oligosaccharides fractans and galacto-oligosaccharides, or we nickname them GOS, G-O-S. And they are found in foods such as garlic, onion, the legume family, and also in wheat products. So these uh, carbohydrates are actually poorly absorbed in the gut of everybody. And so they move through the small intestine uh, without any enzymatic breakdown. Um, then we have the disaccharide component, which refers to lactose, um, which is, is really well understood that in some people their enzyme lactase isn't working. And so we don't get breakdown of the sugar and therefore successful absorption. So that's um, only a problem in people who have a deficiency in the enzyme or, or some sort of chronic inflammation of the gut that is affecting absorption of that sugar. The monosaccharide component of FODMAP refers to fructose, which is found naturally in certain fruits such as apples and pears. It's also found in honey. Fructose is, is a problem just in some people, again. And then we have the group of polyols or sugar alcohols, and the two most common ones are sorbitol and mannitol. They're known to be artificial sweeteners, and also they are found naturally in food. So sorbitol we find in stone fruits as well as apples and pears, and mannitol we find in cauliflower and mushrooms as well as snow peas. Thank you, Dr. Barrett. I'm also kind of interested in the history of this diet. How, when, and, and why did this diet start, and how has it evolved over the years? Okay. Uh, so looking back, there's actually uh, numerous papers from decades ago that have, have looked at individual FODMAP sugars. So, for example, there are some research studies that have looked previously at sorbitol and its effect on the gut. There are some papers that have looked at fructose in very high concentrations in the diet and what that might do. And really, there's been quite a bit of literature out there, but never pulled together so in about 2004, this research was all looked at and brought together to examine whether we can actually benefit patients who suffer gastrointestinal symptoms by considering each and every one of these sugars instead of just one of them individually, uh, which is all that had been done before. So in the very early stages, however, 
the main sugars that were looked at were just fructose and the fructooligosaccharides or fructans. And so the the first diet that was put together called the low FODMAP diet was really only a restriction of two of the sugars and lactose in people who needed it was added as an additional restriction. But over the years with uh, more and more of the research coming out of our department, we realised that there's a broader range of short-chain carbohydrates that can be poorly absorbed and we've built on that. We've also built on our food knowledge of these carbohydrates, uh, which was fairly non-existent before. We, We knew a little bit about fructose and where it might be found in foods, but there was really very little information on the rest of the um, FODMAP picture and its food composition. So uh, our department uh, laboratory actually measure the levels of each of these individual FODMAPs in foods and we've been doing that since about 2004 and have built a very big database of food composition and, and published several papers on food composition over that time as well. What theories have been developed to explain the mechanism of the FODMAP diet? We have done several studies within our department, but again, there have been other groups that in the past have have also looked briefly at these individual sugars. The two main mechanism studies that we've conducted, uh, one of which we conducted in a group of patients who have an ileostomy. So these were patients who had a very normal small intestine Um, no large bowel, so we could actually feed them known amounts of FODMAPs and collect their output at the end of the small intestine and really understand absorption or or malabsorption of these carbohydrates and look at digestion in the small gut. And what we found was that, you know, as, as understood, these FODMAPs can be poorly absorbed, but as they're poorly absorbed, they actually have an osmotic effect and that's related to their small molecular size. So as we fed these individuals more FODMAPs, they had a greater water throughput into, into the collections that we analysed. So as more and more FODMAPs were malabsorbed, more and more water went through the gut. So it appears that they drag water through the small intestine as malabsorption occurs and that's why some people might get diarrhoea from it um, and motility disturbance. The other um, mechanism study that we've looked at is a fermentation study. So we had patients with irritable bowel and in fact healthy controls as well. And we actually fed both groups diets high and low in FODMAPs and had them breathe into breath collection bags over the day and we measured them for breath hydrogen and methane production. And we know that a source of breath hydrogen is fermentation of poorly absorbed carbohydrate in the gut. So if we see a rise in breath hydrogen, we know that malabsorptions occurred. So when we fed them the high FODMAP diet, we saw this extraordinary production of gas occurring over the day. It got greater over the day, which is why some people complain of bloating and and gas-related symptoms and they also often say it gets worse later in the day and at night after dinner and we did see this on these uh, responses to the diet and then when we gave them the low FODMAP diet there was no gas production at all. So we know that these carbohydrates are highly fermented when they're poorly absorbed they move through the small intestine they might bring water with them um, and then they reach bacteria that ferment them produce gas and that causes the rest of the complexity of gastrointestinal symptoms that we generally see in irritable bowel syndrome as well as some other conditions. That leads me kind of to the next question, Dr. Barrett, because you've talked a little bit about how the FODMAP diet is used for patients with irritable bowel, and you discussed that in your paper as well. 
can you expand upon that or at least share with our listeners what other conditions that you found this diet to be effective? Sure. So yeah, the the main condition looked at has been irritable bowel. We have done some randomized control trials, started off with retrospective studies, and there's also been some studies done internationally now as well to confirm the diet efficacy in IBS internationally. We also did a retrospective study in patients who had Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis who had stable inactive disease but complained of gastrointestinal symptoms. So these um, these individuals that sort of fit that profile are said to have irritable bowel on top of their inflammatory bowel disease. So it's functional symptoms in the setting of Crohn's and colitis. And, and we had a 70% improvement of symptoms with those individuals as well. They're the main conditions we've looked at in terms of the published research. Anecdotally, we do see the diet working with, with a range of functional symptoms. If we think about the fact that these carbohydrates can increase water delivery, cause motility disturbance, create gas, then we, when we get any patient that has some sort of mix of those symptoms or individual symptoms like that, we trial it and you know, we trial it in young children who have chronic diarrhea and anecdotally are getting improvements with that as well. Dr. Barrett, how would we as clinicians then help a patient implement this type of a diet? Okay, so what's really important obviously is thorough education and and providing them with up-to-date knowledge on which foods they need to avoid, etc., it's also making sure the clinician really understands this FODMAP concept, the different range of sugars that it can include, and that not everybody has to avoid every single one of them. And also, the biggest thing for clinicians is accessing the right information. If a clinician reads about this diet and thinks, oh, great, I'll try that on my patients, I wonder what the foods are, I'm going to uh, get on the internet and have a look, they're going to find about... 40 different versions of the diet that all contradict each other on the internet. So it's unfortunately become a little bit of a mess out there. So what our Monash department are trying to do is flag our resources and our food lists as the Monash University low FODMAP diet so that people know that they're getting the most up-to-date information if we put our Monash University name with it so they can look for that. We do produce resources that we update annually. So there's um, a low FODMAP diet booklet that can be ordered and there's also the new iPhone app and there's an Android version of it coming out in a few months. So this is a fabulous resource for people who um, want to use it as a clinician and maybe show their patients in clinic and also keep themselves up to date on what foods are safe and what foods aren't but also for the patients to then have so that you know they can be in the supermarket and wonder about a food and, and look it up and know straight away whether it's okay or not. I do want to point out to our readers that in Table 1 there is a list there of some food sources on yeah. the with the FODMAPs, but also, Dr. Barrett, would you be willing to share with our, our listening audience how they can access your materials, is it through a website or you also mentioned the apps? What would we search for in looking for yeah. that? With the app, you can just go to the App Store and you need to look for the Monash University Low FODMAP Diet app. If you type in FODMAP, you'll get other ones that have no information on them that will 
that's a bit of a shame. Again, there's some things out there that aren't correct. In terms of our resources and, and our Monash uh, Central Clinical School gastroenterology website's actually quite good. We're keeping that up to date and we're expanding it all the time with lots of information for clinicians. So that is www.medmed.monash.edu.au forward slash C-E-C-S forward slash gastro. Uh, So that's our departmental website that you can have a look at. The other thing is that with educating on the diet, um, I'm not sure and it probably depends on where people live and what access they have, but there's more and more interest around the world about breath testing as a way of assessing people's ability to absorb lactose and fructose given they're the sugars that may or may not be a problem in individuals. And breath testing can be conducted to rule out whether a sugar needs to be restricted in the FODMAP diet. So you can have your patients undertake fructose and lactose breath testing and if they're negative, you wouldn't need to restrict those components of the FODMAP diet. You'd only need to look at the rest of it, the fractans, the GOSS and the polyols. So that's um, a nice tool to be able to lessen the restriction. As dietitians, we don't like to put everyone on this highly restrictive diet And not that it is, there are good options on it and people cope quite well on it. But if we don't have to restrict all of the sugars, it's obviously a lot easier for the patients. If you don't have access to breath testing, it really isn't the end of the world. Uh, What I do with patients if they don't have access or, or can't afford it or there's some sort of other barrier to having breath testing, then... I just start them on the low FODMAP diet based on their diet history and looking at which sugars are likely to be their biggest culprits. And once their symptoms have resolved, we can reintroduce them one at a time to see whether, in fact, uh, some of them don't need to be restricted in that case. Let me take that a little further. I mean, you mentioned that if someone's not intolerant of that short-chain carbohydrate that they wouldn't need to avoid it. What about the ones that we know that the patients might have symptoms from? Is the FODMAP diet kind of an all-or-none phenomenon? Does the patient have to be completely compliant with it, or will they get partial benefits if they follow even the diet partially or part of the diet? Yeah, they will. And that's the nice thing uh, is that it, for most patients, it doesn't have to be followed really strictly 100% of the time. And, and we get a lot of patients who thought they've had celiac disease over over the time because they've had these gut symptoms they've found out they don't have celiac disease and then they find out they need this diet and they're like oh no now I need to restrict my diet anyway but then they find out unlike celiac disease that it doesn't have to be 100% compliant all the time and and we do find that depending on the patient that um, most of them control their intake of FODMAPs whilst they can you know when they're in control of what they're eating but if they eat out or with friends they're careful but if they have a little bit they find they can cope they don't have the high levels of FODMAPs in their diet every day that they used to have and so a little bit for most people can be quite well tolerated and a lot of people don't cope you know no wheat and they don't like the alternative grains and you know we often find that as long as they don't have wheat-based cereal and wheat-based bread for lunch and pasta for dinner then they're okay to have you know, three wheat-based sandwiches a week or whatever it may be, they can actually get away with a reasonable amount. And and that's something that the clinician will help the patient work on and work towards developing what their tolerance levels are so that they really have a good concept of where they're going for the future management of this. 
Have you found in your experience that there are some patients in whom this diet works better than another than in others? Um, in other words, can you determine by certain patient characteristics which ones will have better success with the diet? In other words, is it attached to the duration or severity of disease, a patient's age, their gender? We're looking into that now. We're not sure. The only thing we've seen to date is that the one gut symptom that is not always well managed is constipation, which when you think about the mechanism of FODMAPs and we know that they're osmotically active and that they drag fluid through the bowel, if we then withdraw them, we're withdrawing fluid movement through the bowel. And if these patients are already constipated, it makes you think, oh, no wonder the constipation doesn't get better because they may have had a bit of fluid coming through from these things that you've now withdrawn and no sort of natural laxative action of these carbohydrates is occurring anymore. However, the other thing with constipation and FODMAPs is that they think that production of certain gases by FODMAPs actually slows motility and that's why in some patients with constipation, we actually do see them get better with this diet. So the constipation part of it is quite complex. We'll have these patients who don't get any improvement, in fact, get worse with their constipation. Their other symptoms might improve, but constipation gets worse on the diet. We have people with constipation and other gut symptoms who completely improve and their bowels are perfect afterwards. And we get other people who um, have constipation, get a little bit better, but are just not quite perfect. And in, in that final group, we need to look at fibre because quite commonly with, with this diet, we find that people aren't conscious of their fibre intake. They cut out their wheaty cereals and, and replace it for rice-based cereals that might have very little fibre. They cut out the fruits that they used to eat and they're not replacing it with enough of the suitable fruits that they can now have. So we need to make sure that as a clinician, we educate them really well, pointing out fibre, encouraging them to keep that up, offering a fibre supplement if we think it's necessary and keeping fluids up, all that sort of standard constipation management. And those patients, we can generally get better with that. Then the, the first group who get worse with those, if they've had improvement in their other gut symptoms but have really nasty constipation, I actually sometimes bring some FODMAPs back in which um, seems bizarre when we're talking low FODMAP and always talking about taking it out. But sometimes I'll use the smaller uh, short-chain carbohydrates, so the ones that are the smallest, which is fructose and the polyols, so sorbitol, and try and bring them back in controlled amounts back into the patient's diet because the smaller the size, the more osmotic effect they're going to have. And we sometimes see if a small amount of these won't produce too much gas that they get their other symptoms but might actually give them a natural laxative effect. So sometimes bringing back some of those fruits, particularly some stewed fruit or something like that, actually works quite well. You've addressed my next question partially with that answer, but what drawbacks are there to following a FODMAP diet and what can be done to overcome those drawbacks? Yeah, well, constipation is one of them, so I guess I've covered that. The other drawback that is actually concerning and is across the board regardless of symptoms is actually the potential effect of the FODMAP diet on the microflora in the gut. So what, what we also know about FODMAPs from previous research prior to FODMAPs even having this name is that things like fructans and galacto-oligosaccharides are actually natural prebiotics. So they encourage the growth of beneficial bacteria in the gut because they're poorly absorbed, because they're fermented and they feed the 
bacteria and they actually are, are very good for gut health. So yes, we're restricting these things because these foods are causing terrible symptoms for these patients and that's the most important thing for them right now. They need control of their symptoms so we need the FODMAP diet to make them better. But when we think about it long term, are we affecting the health of the gut flora? There has actually been one study completed that has looked at this in the UK with some collaborators of ours and what they've done is looked at microflora at baseline and then after four weeks on the low FODMAP diet compared to a normal diet and they did see a reduction in bifidobacteria from the low FODMAP diet which you know, makes us think, oh, okay, hold on a minute, are we causing any long-term issues? So. And what we've always done is not wanted this to be a long-term, highly restricted diet and there's now more reason for that to be the case. And so we, what we want patients to do is to go on it initially to get symptomatic improvement but always trial small amounts. And it, it's probably a fact that you only need small amounts of these foods to get a prebiotic effect. You're not going to need the high levels that some people had in their diet initially to get the benefits. So if we can just dribble small amounts in, if we can find that they can manage small amounts of garlic a couple of times a week and a little bit of wheat here and there and those sort of things, especially legumes would be great. You know, we, we sort of encourage people to make a, a hummus sort of chickpea style dip or something like that and see if they can use that in their diet because small amounts of that may well help prevent this problem from occurring in the gut microflora. Before we conclude, Dr. Barrett, do you have any other issues or topics you'd like to address? Uh, no, I don't. I think it's a, it's a very exciting field. It's certainly changed the way we manage irritable bowel, which it was highly necessary because we really didn't have an answer for it in, in the past. When I used to work in clinic, if I had a patient referred to me with irritable bowel, I always thought, oh no, here we go. I don't know if I'm going to be able to help this patient. Um, and often we couldn't. We put them on high fiber diets and they all got worse. So to have this as a management strategy is just so fabulous for the clinician and the patient, obviously, that we can finally provide relief for these patients. So we're still looking at more research and we're looking at more patient groups that may benefit from this diet. And we're also looking at ways of optimizing the diet to help that gut microflora and constipation issues. So we're working on improving the diet over time as well. Well, I found this conversation just fascinating. I want to thank Dr. Barrett for sharing your expertise with our listeners, and I invite our readers to find out more about this topic in Dr. Barrett's article in the June 2013 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice.